This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Very excited to introduce Rana. Rana is, a, is the uh, global business columnist and associate editor for the Financial Times and CNN's global economic analyst. Previously, she's been the assistant managing editor in charge of business and economics at Time, as well as the magazine's economic columnist and spent 13 years at Newsweek as an economic foreign affairs editor and correspondent. And in her new book, Don't Be Evil, which I think is a great title, <laughs> uh, Rana chronicles how far big tech has fallen from its original vision of free information and digital democracy. Drawing on nearly 30 years of experience reporting on the technology uh, sector, Rana traces the evolution of companies such as Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, <gasps> <laughs> into behemoths that monetize people's data, spread misinformation and hate speech, and threaten citizens' privacy. She also shows how we can fight back by creating a framework uh, that both fosters innovation and protects us from threats posed by digital technology. Her book is already garnering widespread praise, with The Guardian calling it a masterly critique of the internet pioneers who now dominate our world. So without further ado, please help me in welcoming Rana Faruhar to Politics and Prose. Thank you. Um, I am so honored to be here. Um, it's really a pleasure. This is one of my favorite bookstores, probably my favorite bookstore in Washington, and um, so it's just a huge pleasure. Um, I thought I would start by just talking a little bit about how I got the idea to write this book. It's actually my second book. My first book, Makers and Takers, was a look at the financial sector and how it no longer serves business. So I like to kind of take on these big industry-wide, uh, maybe takedowns would be the, <laughs> the word, but um, kind of look at an ecosystem, an economic ecosystem, see how it's working or not working. Um, I got the idea for this book probably two months into my new job at the Financial Times. I was hired in 2017 to be the uh, chief business commentary writer. So my, my job was to sort of look at the top uh, world's business stories, economic stories, and try to make sense of them in commentary. And when I do that, I tend to try and follow the money in order to narrow the funnel of where to put my focus. And I had come across a really, really interesting statistic that 80% of the world's wealth, corporate wealth, was living in 10% of companies. And these were the companies that had the most data, personal data, and intellectual property. And so the biggest of those were the big tech platforms that my my book kind of tries to make uh, icons of. We're using all the candy colors here. Um, the fangs, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google. Um, so that was a pretty stunning statistic. And it was interesting because I, I was thinking about how wealth since 2008 had transferred from the financial sector into the big tech sector. And that had happened really quietly um, without a whole lot of commentary in the press. Now, at the same time, I was starting to kind of dig into this story. Something else happened, a much more personal um, uh, episode. I came home one day, and I, there was a credit card bill waiting for me. And I opened it up, and I started looking through, and there were all these tiny charges in the amount of $1.99, $3, $5, whatever. And I noticed that they were all from the app store. And I thought, oh my gosh, I must have been hacked. And then I thought, who else has my password? My 10-year-old son, Alex. <laughs> um, I see nods from parents <laughs> and others. Um, so I go downstairs and I find Alex on the couch with his phone, which is his usual after-school position. And um, I say, you know, what, what's up? Do you know anything about this? And he sort of 
stunned and oh yes oh that yeah and turns out Alex has gotten very fond of a game called FIFA Mobile which is an online soccer game and it's one of these games that you can download it for free but once you get into the game and start playing you have to buy stuff um, in-app purchases it's called or loot boxes is another another name so if you want to move up the rankings and do well in the game uh, you have to buy virtual Ronaldo or some new shoes for your player and nine hundred dollars and one month later <laughs> Alex was at the top of the rankings <laughs> but I was horrified. I was actually horrified and fascinated, in fact. Um, I mean, as a mother, I was horrified. His phone was immediately confiscated. Passwords were changed. Um, limitations were put into place. By the way, he now officially is allowed only one hour a day on his phone. He's 13 years old. The average for that age is seven hours a day, national average. Now, he sneaks in an extra. I think he probably gets about 90 minutes because I can't police him all the time on the, way to the, on the way to school. But it's, I mean, to me, that is a stunning fact that the average American 13-year-old spends seven hours a day on their phone. Anyway, so I was horrified as a parent, but I was fascinated as a business writer because I thought this is the most amazing business model I have ever seen. And I have to learn everything about it. Um, and right about that time, someone had come to see me, a, a man named Tristan Harris, who's one of the characters in my book. And Tristan is a really interesting guy. He was formerly the chief ethics officer at Google. Um, and he was trying to bring uh, goodness and not evil to the company and, and make sure that all the, all the, the th products and, and services were, were functioning sort of in human interest. And then he realized he was not having any luck doing that within the company. So he decided to go outside and start something called the Center for Humane Technology. And Tristan had become really, really worried about the core business model that is, is particularly relevant uh, for Google and Facebook, but is also a big part of Amazon's model. And, and it's really the model that another author, Shoshana Zuboff, um, who recently wrote a wonderful book on this topic, would call surveillance capitalism. And so it's the idea of companies coming in and tracking everything you are doing online and increasingly offline. You know, if you have your if you have an Android phone, it might know where you are in the grocery store. If you're in a car with smart technology, um, your your location coordinates can be tracked. So all of this is serving to build a picture of you that is then used um, to, to be sold to advertisers and then you can be targeted with what's called hyper-targeted advertising, which is essentially why, for example, if I go online to look for a hotel in California, I might get a certain price, but someone else might get a different price. So this is a really important thing. We are looking at different internets, right? Um, there are subtle differences, but they're there. And this data profile that is being built up is splitting us as individual consumers. But I would ar argue that it's also splitting us as citizens. And I'll, when I get to the readings, I'll, I'll kind of flush that out a bit more. But Tristan um, kind of turned me on to this business model. And he also helped me connect the dots between this business model and what had happened to my son. Um, because it turns out that the technologies, these sorts of nudges that, that take you down a game or that bring you to certain places on Amazon or that give you a certain kind of search result or purchasing um, option uh, on Google, 
are part of an entire field called captology, um, which is kind of an Orwellian word. And these these uh, technologies actually come largely out of something called the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab. So there is an entire industry that is designed to track your behavior and pull in things like behavioral psychology, casino gaming techniques, and then layer those onto apps that will push you towards making purchasing decisions or perhaps even other kinds of decisions, political decisions, that might be good for certain actors. Um, and it's interesting because when I started to think about all this, one of the things I really wanted to do in this book was to cry, try and create a single narrative arc um, to take folks through this 20-year evolution of this industry from the mid-1990s, which is really when the consumer internet was born, till now. And at the time I was writing, and, and, and still probably today, you could argue that Facebook was uh, the company that was getting the most negative attention for a lot of the economic and political ramifications of, of its business model. But if you go back to the very beginning, Google is the most interesting way to track this because Google really invented the targeted advertising business model. They really invented surveillance capitalism. And one of the things that is fascinating, and, and sometimes I'm asked, what's the most surprising thing that you found when writing this book? And really the most surprising thing is it was all hiding in plain sight. So if you go back to the original paper that Larry Page and Sergey Brin, who were the founders of Google, did in 1998 while um, at Stanford as graduate students, they actually lay out, they lay out what a giant search engine would look like, how it would function, but then how you might pay for it. And if you go down to page 33, there is a section in the appendix called Advertising and Its Discontents. And it essentially says that if you monetize a search engine in this, this way with hyper-targeted advertising, the interests of the users and the interests of the advertisers, be they companies or who knows what, public entities, are eventually going to come into conflict. And so they actually recommend that there be some kind of academic search engine, an open search engine in the public interest. So this to me, first of all, is fascinating that it was just there all along. Um, and fascinating that very few people have read that entire paper, even though um, e even those that write about it, which in some ways kind of goes to the point that um, in the last 20 years, we all do a lot less reading, not folks here, but, <laughs> but in general, um, we do less reading. There was actually a fascinating study that came out recently from Common Sense Media, which is Jim Steyer's group in California that tracks uh, children's behaviors online. Teenagers, only one-third of them read for pleasure more than once a month. Uh, long-form articles. Doesn't matter if you're reading on an e-book or a device, but long-form articles, books, only once a month for pleasure. So all our entire world has been changed. Um, economically, these companies have huge monopoly power. Politically, we're all kind of living with the ramifications of this new world of social media, disinformation, fake news. And cognitively, our brains are changing, our behaviors are changing. So connecting all of those things um, was really what I was trying to get at in this book. And so um, I'm gonna read two or three maybe short excerpts and then we can leave a lot of time for questions so that people can kind of dive into uh, as much of this as they want. And um, I'll start perhaps with um, my very first meeting with the Googlers. Um, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, who I met not in Silicon Valley, but in Davos, the Swiss gathering spot of the global power elite, 
where they, they had taken over a small chalet to meet with a select group of media. The year was 2007. The company had just purchased YouTube a few months back, and it seemed eager to convince skeptical journalists that this acquisition wasn't yet another death blow to copyright, paid content creation, and the viability of the news publications for which we worked. Unlike the buttoned-up consulting types or the suited executives from the old guard multinational corporations that roamed the promenades of Davos, their tasseled loafers slipping on the icy paths, the Googlers were the cool bunch. They wore fashionable sneakers, and their chalet was sleek, white, and stark, with giant cubes masquerading as chairs in a space that looked as though it had been repurposed that morning by designers flown in from the valley. In fact, it may have been, and if so, Google would not have been alone in such excess. I remember attending a party once in Davos hosted by Napster founder and former Facebook president Sean Parker that featured giant taxidermy bears and a musical performance by John Legend. Back in the Google chalet, Bryn and Paige projected a youthful earnestness as they explained the company's involvement in authoritarian China and insisted they'd never be like Microsoft, which was considered the corporate bully and monopolist of the time. What about the future of news, we wanted to know. After admitting that Page read only free news online, whereas Bryn often bought the Sunday New York Times in print, it's nice, he said cheerfully. The duo affirmed exactly what we journalists wanted to hear. Google, they assured us, would never threaten our livelihoods. Yes, advertisers were indeed ma migrating en masse from our publications to the web, where they could target consumers with a level of precision that the print world could barely imagine. But not to worry, Google would generously retool our business model so we, too, could thrive in the new digital world. I was much younger then, and not the admittedly cynical business journalist that I have since become, and yet I listened skeptically, skeptically to that happy future of news le lecture. Whether Google actually intended to develop some brilliant new revenue model or not, what alarmed me was that none of us were asking a far more important question. Sitting towards the back of the room, somewhat conscious of my relatively junior status, I hesitated, waiting until the final moments of the meeting before raising my hand. Excuse me, I said, we're talking about all this like journalism is the only thing that matters, but isn't this really about democracy? If newspapers and magazines are all driven out of business by Google or companies like it, I asked, how are people going to find out what's going on? Larry Page looked at me with an odd expression, as if he were surprised that someone should be asking such a naive question. Oh, yes, we've got a lot of people thinking about that. Not to worry, his tone seemed to say. Google had the engineers working on that little democracy problem. Next question. Um, I read that because... I'm kind of amazed that there is still a real lack of understanding, I think, in the Valley about um, some of the real negative externalities of what have been, let's face it, amazing technologies. I mean, we, you know, where would we be without search and our smartphones? We all carrying around the power of a mainframe in our pockets. But um, as a journalist, I think there's really been a... Um, an inability of these companies to kind of own up to, um, you know, some of the, the bad stuff that they have wrought, and I think that that still considers, or sorry, still continues to be to be the case. One of the other points that I try and make in the book is that the problems I'm talking about have actually moved outside of just the big four flat, uh, platform firms. That that we're moving into a world in which surveillance capitalism is going to be part of the healthcare system and the financial system and um, really, every kind of business is now using this as its model. So, for example, if you um, buy coffee at Starbucks, Starbucks knows a lot about you. 
Johnson & Johnson knows a lot about you. There, there are firms watching you all the time. And so we're really at a pivot point, I think, um, where we have to ask as a society, what are the deeper implications of this and are we okay with them? And so I'm, I would like to read another excerpt um, where I, I look at how this model is, is moving into the insurance sector and, and what that means. Um, so far, data has been obtained via computers and mobile devices, but now with the rise of personal digital assistants like Amazon's Alexa, Google's Home Mini, and Apple's Siri, now, a third, now in a third of American homes, with triple-digit sales growth a year, the human voice is the new gold. While reports of Alexa, Alexa and Siri listening in on conversations and phone calls are disputed, there's no question that they can hear every word you say. And from there, it's a short step to them using that knowledge to direct your purchasing decisions. It isn't much of a longer step to see the political implications. Already, some researchers worry that digital assistants will become even more powerful tools than social media for election manipulation. Certainly, none of us will be unaffected. Consider, consider that homeowner. Oops, sorry. I'm reading from a... Reading from the wrong part, I think. Uh, ba, 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 ba. Apologies. Um, somehow picked the wrong section here. Anyway, I'm going to talk you through this example because um, it's it's something that is already out there. I had a conversation a couple of years ago with an executive from Zurich Financial, which is a big financial company. Um, they do insurance many parts of the world. They will now, if you'd like them to, put sensors in your home or in your car. And if you have, for example, as I do, you live in a 1901 townhouse, let's say you're upgrading your pipes, you get a check, you get a, you know, a positive mark, and you may see your insurance premium go down. But let's say your kid is smoking a joint in their bedroom, and the sensor picks up on that. You then get a black mark here, and your premium may go up. Same again in your car, if you're speeding, um, your insurance company will know and so on and so forth. Now, you can either like this or not, depending on where you sit in the socioeconomic spectrum, but what's very, very interesting is that entire business model, a pooled risk business model, that's what insurance is, it's now been completely disintermediated. So you can be targeted and split. So this is no longer about society pulling risk, uh, sorry, pooling risk, this is about individuals having to own the risk. So if you take that to its natural conclusion, um, you can imagine an elite up here that has access to special pricing and, and all kinds of great products, but you can also imagine an, uh, an uninsurable group of people at the bottom. And then who is gonna pick up that risk now? The public sector, maybe. Maybe there'll be a, a junk bond market for insurance. Either way, you have a split in society that didn't exist before. And that was always the business model here. You know, you go back and read some of the early work of someone like Hal Varian, for example, who was the chief economist at Google, splitting pricing down to the individual was always the point of platform technology firms like Google or Facebook or Amazon, splitting individuals out so they could be targeted in different ways. But that not only splits um, pricing, it splits society. And so that's kind of really the, the, the core issue I want to get at here. Um, I think I'll maybe read just, just one more excerpt and then we can, do we have, we have time, yeah? And then we'll open it up for questions after that. Um, 
my first book, just to, to mention again, was about the financial industry. And one of the things that strikes me is that big tech companies have in some way become the new too big to fail entities. Um, not only are they holding more wealth and power than the largest banks, but in some ways they function like banks. Um, they have a tremendous amount of money. They use it to buy up corporate debt. Uh, if that debt were to go bad, that could actually be the beginnings of another financial crisis. And so that's kind of a part of this story that really hasn't gotten out there. So let me, let me um, read just two or three more pages for you on that topic. The late great management guru Peter Drucker once said, in every major economic downturn in U.S. history, the villains have been the heroes during the preceding boom. I can't help but wonder if that might be the case over the next few years as the United States and possibly the world heads towards its next big slowdown. Downturns historically come about once every decade, and it's been more than that since the 2008 financial crisis. Back then, banks were the too big to fail institutions responsible for our falling stock portfolios, home prices, and salaries. Technology companies, by contrast, have led the market upswing over the past decade. But this time around, it's the big tech firms that could play the spoiler role. You wouldn't think that it could be so when you look at the biggest and richest tech firms today. Take Apple, for example. Warren Buffett says he wished he owned even more Apple stock. Goldman Sachs is launching a new credit card with the tech titan, which became the world's first trillion-dollar market cap company in 2018. But hidden within these bullish headlines are a number of disturbing economic trends of which Apple is already exemplar. Study this one company and you begin to understand how big tech companies, the new too big to fail institutions, could indeed sow the seeds of the next financial crisis. The first thing to consider is the financial engineering done by such firms. Like most of the largest and most profitable multinational companies, Apple has loads of cash, about 300 billion, as well as plenty of debt, close to 122 billion. That's because, like nearly every other large, rich company, it has parked most of its spare cash in offshore bond portfolios over the last 10 years. At the same time, since the 2008 crisis, it has issued cheap debt at rates to do, uh, sorry, it has issued cheap rate, sorry, cheap debt uh, at low rates in order to do record amounts of share buybacks and dividend payments. Apple's responsible for about a quarter of the $407 billion in buybacks announced since the Trump tax bill was passed in December of 2017. But buybacks have bolstered mainly the top 10% of the U.S. population that owns 84% of all stock. The fact that share buybacks have become the biggest single use of corporate cash for over a decade now has buoyed markets. But it's also increased the wealth divide, which many econ economists believe is the, not only the single biggest factor in slower than historic trend growth, but is also driving political populism, which threatens the market system itself. That phenomenon has been put on steroids by the rise of yet another trend epitomized by Apple. Intangibles, such as intellectual property and brands, now make up a much larger share of wealth in the global economy. The digital economy has a tendency to create superstars since software and internet services are so scalable and they enjoy network effects. Let's see. But as, these, as software and internet services become a bigger part of the economy, they reduce investment across the economy as a whole. And that's not only because banks are reluctant to lend to businesses whose intangible assets may simply disappear if they go belly up, but because of the winner-take-all effect that a handful of companies, including Apple, Amazon, and Google, enjoy. So to sum this up in plain English, 
As this handful of companies has gotten bigger and more powerful, investment in the overall economy has declined. The number of jobs that they're creating relative to their market size is much lower than that in the past. So you have the superstar economy that has become kind of a winner-take-all game. Um, I think that we're going to probably see some kind of a market correction in the next couple of years. Um, it's going to be very interesting at that point to see whether tech leads the markets down and whether you might then see a kind of an Occupy Silicon Valley uh, sentiment as you did in 2008 with Occupy Wall Street. I think that that's really quite possible. Um, we can delve more into that if you'd like, but I think I want to stop here and be respectful of question time. and. There are parts that you guys want to hear more about or um, particular areas that I could read more from. You can let me know. Go ahead. Uh, two questions. Yeah, two questions, if you don't mind, because sure. we don't get to speak very often, you and I. Um, one is, um, you've doubtless read about Bloomberg's decision recently to forbade its uh, reporters from covering Michael Bloomberg. Yeah. Yet the Washington Post has no problem uh, investigating Bezos. Mm. Do you see, is that a problem for you? For, do you? Have you thought about that? Is that a hmm. um, sort of an inconsistency that should bother a financial journalist? And the second question is, how important uh, for any solution to the problems you, you raise would uh, anti the revival of antitrust mm. be, as we see on the continent, where mm. it's more aggressive, and among some of the the Democratic um, candidates for the presidency. Well, so let me take the antitrust question first. Um, that's actually an important part of the book. Uh, there's an entire chapter on antitrust. And I think we probably are going to see some shifts. Um, as folks may know, since the 1980s onward, antitrust in America has basically been predicated on price. So as long as consumer prices were falling, it was perceived that companies could be as big as they wanted, that it wasn't a problem. But one of the things I look at in the book is this, this shift to a world in which um, transactions are being done not in dollars, but in data. So that's a, that's a barter transaction, really. And one of the things that's so interesting, and this is actually a way, another way in which Silicon Valley is similar to Wall Street, the transaction is really opaque. So you don't know, essentially, how much you're paying for the f supposedly free service that you're receiving. Um, that is a very difficult market to create fairness within. And it, it probably makes the Chicago school notion of consumer prices going down, no problem, um, it, it, I think probably irrelevant. Uh, and so there's two ways in which that's being dealt with. You have the rise of this new Brandeis school of thinking in which, um, you know, maybe this is really about power. Maybe, maybe we should think about the big tech firms like we do the 19th century railroads, where, all right, you know, you had at one point rail, railroad titans that would come in and build tracks and then own the cars and then own the things that were in the cars. And eventually that became a zero sum game. And it's, you know, it's, as folks probably know, we're in a period in which there's as much concentration of wealth and power as there was in the Gilded Age. So, I could imagine very easily a scenario in which you could justify Amazon, say, being the platform for e-commerce, but not being able to compete in the specific areas of fashion or, or you know, whatever else they're selling against other customers. And in fact, that's already the case in the financial sector, that 
big companies that trade, let's say, aluminum, you know, as Goldman Sachs did, this is what it ran into a, a suit a few few years ago that it was both owning all the aluminum and trading it. And that's that's anti-competitive. And so that became an, an issue for the Fed. So I think we probably are going to see that kind of ruling. As for the post and journalism, you know, it's funny, I, I have some friends that are that are quite um, influential in the post. And they say that Bezos is pretty hands-off. I mean, I can't, I can't vouch for that. One thing I will say is that Amazon did put this book on the top 20 nonfiction uh, list of the month. So, you know, I don't know if that's a ploy to make me think that they're they're being really fair, but <laughs> prob probably Jeff Bezos, I don't know. I, he's probably not thinking that much about this book or me, but um, anyway. Uh, next question. Go ahead. So it seems like some of the major decisions that these big tech companies are making are in regard to fake news and how they're moderating fake news or the lack of it. So have you seen maybe an approach by any current social media platform or any proposed plans in place that you think would be best for moderating fake news? That's such a good question. So um, just to kind of pull back, the, the two points of view on that are hey, look, you know, the platform tech companies are essentially giant media and advertising firms, right? I mean, if you look at the business model of a Google or a Facebook, it's essentially just like the Financial Times or CNN. It's just much more effective, and it can be targeted to the individual. Um, that means that these firms have taken, you know, 85, 90% of the new digital advertising pie in the last few years. Now, given that they function as media companies, should they not be liable for disinformation in the way that a media company would be. So if I print something incorrect at the FT, that's you know the, the paper and also my hide on the line there. Um, I think that we should actually think about rolling back some of those loopholes that these firms enjoy since the mid-1990s onwards. Um, I think that they are going to have to take some responsibility. Now, the question is, do we want Mark Zuckerberg being the minister of truth? And, and that's... <laughs> That's, that's a really tough question. What I would prefer is for the government to actually, you know, for democratically elected governments to come up with rules about what is and isn't appropriate and to not have individual companies making those choices. I think we're in a period right now where, you know, you've got Twitter, you've got Google to a certain extent coming out and saying, okay, we recognize we need to do things differently. That's putting pressure on Facebook. But at the end of the day, we're gonna have to have, I think, uh, an entirely new framework not just in this area, but also in taxation, in um, uh, you know, in antitrust, which we've already talked about. This is the shift that we're going through. Is I think the new industrial revolution. It's a seventy-year transition, and it's going to require a lot of different frameworks um, relative to what we already have. So the answer is no. I don't see any particular company that has come up with the right framework yet. Any other questions? Oh, thanks. Yeah. I'd like to go back to antitrust for a minute. The Washington Post put up an article just this afternoon about how Apple is changing its business model. And it's different, as you know, it's differentiated itself in the market by saying they care about privacy. Well, now they are moving from a, um, a um, device company to a services company, according mm -hmm. to the article. And they, are use, and they are using privacy as a lever to, to provide services that their, um, that other smaller companies like Tile, which is the example in the article, um, uh, has used to create a market for itself. Right. And so um, it says in the article that the feds are considering looking at antitrust measures against Apple. But I think 
it raises a bigger question that you um, pointed to, which is that the models of antitrust don't work anymore. Mm -mm. So um, in terms of privacy, lots of people have talked about monetizing privacy, getting paid for yeah. your data. But how do you think, from an economic point of view, we as a society need to look at the role of privacy and the role of antitrust together to somehow change the way we think about these companies because in addition, we've got consolidation in the marketplace. So there's yeah. no longer fair competition. You can't become another Amazon right. easily because there are so many big, so many, because the players are big and there are so few of them in each part of the economy. Yeah, right. So there's a lot in what you've just said. Um, for starters, I think you're hitting on something really important, which I get at in my solutions chapter that. This is such a huge shift, and it's touching so many different areas. I mean, we've talked about privacy. We've talked about antitrust. We haven't even gotten into national security, um, you know, civil liberties. I mean, there, there are so many different areas. And when you, one of the things I noticed when I sat down to write the solution sections, you know, when you do a think book, you always have to have the solutions section. And, you know, the publisher wants like that silver bullet thing. And you look at this, and you notice that when you pull a lever here, it affects something in this other area. So... I think that's one reason why we should have a national um, committee to actually look at what are all the questions. It's when I speak to folks, particularly in DC policymakers, there's you know the antitrust camp here, the privacy camp here, the security folks there. That conversation needs to be happening in a 360 way, and it, it is happening much more so that way in Europe. I will say, I just came off of two weeks of um, book touring in Europe, and the the conversation there I think is much more developed, and they seem to be to go to your point about the ecosystem and how you share it, one of the things that seems to be, um, folks seem to be headed towards is a public digital commons, a kind of a database. Let's say, all right, if you decide, as you know, the cat seems to be out of the bag, that we're gonna allow surveillance capitalism. I mean, there, there are certain folks like Shoshana would love to see the dial turned back. I'm not sure if that's possible. Let's have a public database in which not just one corporation or a handful of corporations, but multiple uh, size players, as well as the public sector, as well as individual uh, citizens who's, you know, after all, it's our data being harvested. Mm -hmm. Everybody gets access, and then you can figure out how you want to share the pie. And one interesting example recently is um, the Google Sidewalk Project in mm -hmm. Toronto. Um, it sounds like you're up on these issues, so you're probably aware, but Google... Um, had taken over sort of 12 acres on the Toronto waterfront and put sensors everywhere. And the idea was to create a smart city in which you'd be able to manage traffic patterns and energy usage and things like that. But until recently, Google was gonna own all that data and have access to it. And finally, the Toronto government got a clue and said, well, actually, you know what, let's put this in a public database so other smaller or mid-sized local firms can come in and be part of that economic ecosystem, but also, as a public sector, we can decide, well, maybe we want to share data for energy issues or for health issues, but maybe we don't want to share it for certain other kinds of things. And perhaps there would be some way in which individuals could take back some of that value. So California is thinking about a digital dividend payment from the big tech companies. There's also been talk of a digital sovereign wealth fund, if you think about kind of data as the new oil. Um, whatever the, the, the value is judged to be, it would be put in the sovereign wealth fund in the same way that Alaska or Wyoming 
give back payments or use that for, for the, the public sector, that could be done with data too. So I think something like that is probably going to be the best solution. I'll tell you, I have many examples in the book of ways in which the bigger players have been able to squash small and mid-sized firms. And that, that's a major issue. And a lot of venture capitalists that I speak to are actually becoming concerned about that because they say that there's sort of black zones of innovation um, where if Amazon is there or Google is there, you really can't start a business. There's just been too much that's been, been ring-fenced. Question over here. Yes. Uh, while your book may be the, the, the best one on the subject, there have certainly been other books before talking about uh, individuals' privacy and their, their data and, and everything about them. Why is it that you think people are so um, unconcerned about handing over all of their data to these companies when they are perhaps very concerned about handing it over to the government? Why, yeah, why, yeah, why, yeah. why do they feel these guys are, are, are the good guys and the government is necessarily the bad guys? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. And that really varies from country to country. I find that, that that's sort of a, an interesting cultural dynamic that can shift depending on what market you're in. Um, I, I have really been puzzled as to why people are so, first of all, why everybody just clicks the box and says no problem. I think part of that is, is the opacity of the market. I mean, if you kind of go back to Adam Smith, basic mm -hmm. economics, you need three things to make a market function property, properly. That would be equal access to data, transparency in the transaction, and a shared moral framework. And you could argue that none of those things are in place <laughs> when we're making these transactions. Mm -hmm. I think as that, fa that very fact becomes um, better explained and people begin to kind of understand that narrative like the insurance example I just gave, that all right, you're getting something, but you're giving up a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I'm beginning to see pushback already, and I suspect um, in recent weeks, as some of the big players have moved into healthcare, um, you know, into into the commercial banking business, I just think that we are going to begin to see more people um, mm -hmm. being reluctant to give up that much value for what they're getting. You're also interestingly seeing when there are other options. Um, people will go elsewhere. So Jimmy Wales, who started Wikipedia just, a, I think, a couple of weeks ago, came up with a new social networking site. He's already got 300,000 users there. And it's a non, they don't do targeted advertising. It's run on the wiki model where you can donate if you want. Um, I think once the antitrust piece is in place and you actually have space for new competitors to come in and to offer up different kinds of services that perhaps are um, uh, more respectful of privacy, that you you know you could see a shift there. But I'm I'm curious actually. Can I pull the audience for a minute? Because I, I want to ask, how many people think that in the next five years individuals are going to become more worried about giving up information and that's going to change their behavior online? So like two thirds, but not yeah. That's interesting. Okay. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> we're sheep. We're sheep. Oh, my God. That was a different book. Uh, go ahead. Curious if you see the administration's suggestion that it that California can't set its own rules for uh, gas mileage and so on and emissions as having a parallel in this area. Hmm. Um, you know, I hadn't thought about that question before. I always think about California as really le being very uh, leading what is eventually going to become the national standard. And I think in data, I feel like that is going to happen. Um, 
you know, even the Europeans, in fact, are saying that the California model is probably the better model for, for data, data protection and privacy and, and sharing of value. So the Europeans have GDPR, you know, which was kind of the first step in the privacy direction. But it doesn't take into account that economic ecosystem. So perversely, you have the big companies maybe being able to do better with the GDPR model and smaller ones getting cut out of the loop because they don't have the legal muscle to kind of deal with all the, the rules. So I do think the California model is going to become a de facto standard. We also haven't talked about China, which is, of course, going its own way. And I have a, I have a chapter in the book where I look at that. Um, I look at the current trade war, tech war, kind of through the lens of surveillance capitalism. And that's going to be very interesting. I, th I think one of the big, probably the biggest mid to long term economic question for me is are we going to see a transatlantic alliance around digital trade and coming up with some standards because china is going its own direction it's going to develop its own ecosystem it has its own big players the us is in another category but where is europe going to be is it going to be a tripolar world is it going to be a bipolar world um, in terms of how all this works that that's a major economic and actually foreign policy question i think Thanks. Over here. Yeah. Hey, thanks for coming and speaking. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, um, we have like a Department of Agriculture, we have a Department of Energy. Will there be a Department of Technology ever in the U.S. and which other countries already have that kind yeah. of thing going? Yeah. Um, England is talking about that, actually. I think kind of an FDA of technology is probably a very good idea. Um, you know, I see, going back to the example about my son, they're, they're, the research is nascent and causality is, is difficult to prove, but there, there's, um, you know, a new body of research since 2011, 2012, when smartphones really became ubiquitous, showing that levels of anxiety and depression in younger people are rising. Um, you know, there, there, there are issues of self-harm, uh, sometimes when people, you know, use these technologies addictively. So... I think that that's, that's a big issue. To me, it's very similar to cigarettes. Um, you know, those were regulated. There was a different narrative, and then behaviors changed. And I think, I think that that's one area to consider policy-wise. Um, is there maybe time for one or two more questions? OK, sorry, over here and then over here. Hi. Um, I'm kind of curious what you think about the fact that most of these conversations yeah. around technology or even democracy tends to focus on institutions and systems and structures, mm -mm. which is great mm. because they are so powerful and ubiquitous. My background is in teaching critical thinking mm. and in conflict management. And I, wor I worry that so little attention is being paid to the intelligence and maturity of the citizenry. Hmm. Uh, I'm from India. After 70 years of democracy, we've lost it. Mm. I think it's simplistic mm. to blame the right-wing leaders and the government. I believe we as a people have not developed the maturity to be uh, effective, intelligent citizens. Mm. We don't have the values. We are still feudal. We are still extremely hierarchical. Uh, we don't have the democratic values in India, and we didn't cultivate it over 70 years. I see a parallel to uh, being susceptible to the seductions of technology, mm. uh, whether it be fake news or the clickbaiting 
or anything that uh, the big companies seduce us with, that even as we need, as you said, the, an FDA kind of a, uh, for technology, mm. we seem to be absolving ourselves of the responsibility of right. being, you know, of waking up and so, thinking so like I, homo sapiens. I hear, I hear what you're saying, and it's interesting. Two things come to mind. Um, first of all, as I say, I just got back from Europe. The debate is much more nuanced there and, and further along, and I think that's in part because there was not quite as much pendulum shift in the last 40 or 50 years from the public sector to the private sector as there was here. I think, um, I'm not quite sure if I agree entirely with your point about institutions. I think in some ways, part of the problem, one of the reasons why we have concentration levels that are same as they were in the, in the uh, 19th century, is that you know we have a generation of business leaders that grew up in the 80s thinking that the government was only good for cutting taxes. And there's hyper-individualism that's, that's um, throughout the entire economic model. And in some ways, I think that you know, Facebook is maybe the apex of the neoliberal economic model. Um, if you think about uh, the, the problems of globalization were that capital, you know, it was supposed to be, globalization was supposed to be about capital, goods, and people crossing borders. Well, it turned out that capital could cross a lot faster than either goods or people. If you take that into the world of data, that's even more true. And so I think that you have a group of companies now that have really turbocharged a lot of the problems that have given us the, the politics that we have now. And, and a company like Facebook, I mean, I think at every time Zuckerberg is on the Hill, it's like there's this attitude that they are supranational, you know, and kind of flying 35,000 feet above national concerns. And I think that that's part of a larger shift and probably going to be a big part of the 2020 debate, right? Um, are we going to now have a pendulum shift back away from private power to some public power, some different sharing of that, which is a values question, which I think gets at some of what you're talking about. Um, Long-winded answer. Anyway, I think we have time for maybe one more question. Yeah, uh, two quick questions. Okay. One is um, some of the tech companies, especially the platform companies, have, you know, why should we not um, consider looking at them as utility companies. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the f we've had phone companies, and as far as I know, they don't data mine our conversations. I may be mistaken, <laughs> but, right? I mean, right. that's, they could easily right, have Right, right, right. Yes, it's different, different business model, yeah. Yeah, so, so that was one. The other thing is you mentioned that eventually we need tech policy around this, and the issue, at least my issue, is that the people who make these decisions, the, the policy makers, uh, they just, uh, most of them don't have the technical background right. to properly assess the different choices and make those decisions. I mean, I think one of them, Zuckerberg or someone testified, the questioning was just awful. I mean, I they, know. they it just It was like didn't, a four hour tech support It was call, terrible, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know, so, I know. Anyway, um, whatever thoughts you have on no, that. No, that's a great, and that's a, maybe a great place to, to sort of wrap up. Um, I think the utility model is 
completely viable. And it's interesting, one of the bits of pushback that you'll sometimes get from folks in the Valley about that is, well, if we're if we're split in this way, um, or if the the capacity to innovate is sort of you know compressed as the profit margins would be compressed in a utility model, that'll be bad for innovation. Not really. Um, I mean, the the statistics show for starters that companies innovate more when they're smaller. They tend to innovate more when they're private. Um, and breakups in the past, you can argue, have actually created more innovation. So, a lot of academics would say that even the the the, the antitrust, just the threat of antitrust action against Microsoft was one of the reasons that Google was allowed to uh, to blossom as it did. You can go back to the breakup of, of, um, of the Bells and say maybe that created space for the cell phone industry to, to uh, move ahead. So I think there's a lot of um, examples that a more decentralized model is actually a good thing. And I think that that is actually going to be a really important thing because right now, there's this, I think, very perverse debate in the U.S. Um, that is bringing together parts of the far right and parts of the far left that, all right, we need these companies to stay big because they're the national champions in the, the coming war with China. That is a complete bunk. Um, that is not shown out. Uh, first of all, I mean, these companies would love to be in China if they could get into China. Um, uh, you know, I think decentralized is the advantage um, in all respects in the U.S. Um, economically. So, yeah, I I'm, I'm, have no problems with a utility model. Um, anyway, I, I think my time is up, but I'd be happy to sign books and answer any other questions here at the table. And thanks so much for your attention. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.